working with the transgender and non-binary population. Uh, this special topic is working with microaggressions, privilege, and minority stress. I'm Jacob or Jake Rostovsky. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist here in California. So a little bit about me, uh, I apologize, it's a repeat for anyone who's joining us for a second time. Uh, I'm a globally known advocate, thought leader, and licensed therapist. I also work to bring awareness, inclusion, and empowerment to the transgender and non-binary community. And during this workshop or this training, we're going to refer a lot to the community as TGNB. So if you hear me interchange and go back and forth, that's what I'm referring to. I've been openly trans since I was 13, and I use my personal experience and professional background as a mental health provider to educate and facilitate conversations around this community. I also like to talk, and I like to talk fast. So if you want me to slow down or need to repeat, please go ahead and press chat. And I'm just going to forewarn and apologize if my cat makes an appearance today. She's been um, kind of needy. So uh, we'll see if Pearl comes by and says hello. So a little bit of terminology review. So um, we're just going to go over this super fast because we went more in depth in it during the Trans 101. So sex, sex is the classification of a person as a male, female, or intersex, right? So this can be incongruent or congruent with someone's gender identity. So sex is usually, I always joke, it's what a gender reveal party really is. It's more of a sex reveal party, right? We're revealing what someone's sexual uh, anatomy is. Gender identity is a person's internal sense of their gender. So this can be congruent with their sex, which is cisgender, or incongruent transgender, or neither, which is non-binary. Transgender is a widely accepted umbrella term for people whose gender identity expression differs from what is associated with the sex they are assigned at birth. So for me, I was assigned female. I identify as male. I am transgender. Individuals who experience their gender identity beyond the categories of man and woman are non-binary. So this is not the same as transgender. And what I love to sort of say is that trans individuals usually fall within a binary, right? Male, female. Non-binary, they can go back and forth, identify with neither. Um, it's a whole wonderful wide spectrum. And you're seeing more and more youth actually come out as non-binary than transgender. Cisgender is a term used to describe people who are not transgender or non-binary. So think the heterosexual to the homosexual. So the fun little, um, I guess, analogy or metaphor, something that I used to remember all this really easily is uh, your sex, so sexual orientation, right? Who you're attracted to. Sexual orientation is who you go to bed with. Gender identity is who you go to bed as, and then your gender expression is what you go to bed wearing, right? So it's this fun sort of mix of everything. So we're going to move into power and oppression. Um, and I just want to go ahead and first and foremost say that I cannot speak on anyone's experience, not even another trans male experience. What I'm speaking on today is the global understanding, the studied, the research, the, um, you know, peer-reviewed data about oppression and power. And we're going to talk a little bit about multiple communities, but focus 
focused primarily on the trans and non-binary community. So once again, like I said, I'm not speaking on behalf of individuals, I'm just speaking about individuals. So oppression. Oppression are fact, you know, factors such as race or social class, sexual orientation, religious identity, body size, all influence the amount of adversity that a trans individual might face, right? So trans individuals are also subjected to an increased risk of being the victims of violent crimes. And we're gonna talk a little bit about that more in depth soon. Stats suggest that trans individuals are actually subjected to more than twice the amount of rate of violence than a cisgender individual. And this is true, and we'll, we'll go into this even more, um, but I want you to take a moment and just think about oppression in general, right? So oppression are all of these different factors that we just talked about, and then you lump it into someone who's trans identified. They're already sort of dealing with more factors than a cisgender person. So these are the five faces of oppression. The five faces of oppression can be found within the oppressive system of cisgender privilege. So this emphasizes the idea that non-binary genders are distinct from and less legitimate than cissexual or cisgender genders, right? So it's saying that there's inherent oppression just with not being cisgender. Any questions so far? No? Okay. So here are the five faces of oppression, okay? Exploitation, powerlessness, systemic violence, cultural imperialism, and marginalization. And each one of these things I can talk about in their own uh, training for hours and hours and hours, but this is an abbreviated one. And so I'll go over them a little bit quicker. So exploitation is using someone's story, uh, using someone's experience for gain um, as well, right? So you see a lot, I think of a lot of like using trans individuals in news stories and it's very sensationalized or like inviting trans non-binary individuals like on Oprah or Dr. Phil. And so, you know, the majority of the community that's watching that are white cisgender women from the Midwest. So we're exploiting someone's story for the entertainment of someone else. Powerlessness, we see this all the time, and we're gonna talk a little bit about uh, factors that uh, heighten powerlessness. Systemic violence, we see that going on right now with a lot of different things in the United States, um, but we also see violence from cisgender individuals towards trans individuals because of fear, um, because of the unknown. Cultural imperialism, that's pretty um, self-explanatory and marginalization, right? Um, we're gonna talk about marginalization in depth soon. So uh, there's a question, it says, is it right that some people who are trans might do the surgery and some might not be? Um, so we talked a little bit about that in the other one and I'm happy to talk a little bit about that right now just to um, say that everyone's transition is completely different. Uh, so transition might mean for one person just coming out and going by their affirmed name or pronoun. Another person might be to have 
sexual uh, affirmation surgery or gender confirmation surgery. Um, and we used to have a term a long, long, long time ago to differentiate between people who had gender reassignment or gender uh, confirmation and who didn't, and that was transsexual and transgender. We threw away transsexual, we don't use that anymore, and now transgender is the all, um, uh, the umbrella term for the whole community. So if you're a person working with a client and you say transsexual, prepare to be met with uh, faces of judgment because we do not use that word anymore. Okay, so microaggressions. This is one of my favorite words. Um, and it's because, and I'll tell you right now, microaggressions are statements, actions, incidents that are regarded, regarded as indirect, subtle, or unintentional discrimination against a marginalized group, right? So we can think of microaggressions, and I, I know bless, bless people, they try to be nice and polite, but things that they say come out just being extremely discriminatory, right? Uh, and so the ones I think about a lot are like African-American individuals and people say, can I touch your hair? Or, oh, you don't act black. Or, oh, um, wow, you're so well-spoken, right? You hear that for a lot of cultures, especially cultures where English is a second language. Um, like when they come to America, wow, you're so well-spoken. Oh, you're so smart. Oh, right. It's like you're trying to be nice and pay a compliment, but it's not. It's very damning. Um, so let's take a second and I want you to think about your own identity, right? Whatever you, you know, describe as your identity. It could be part of your gender, it could be your race, it could be your religion, right? What are some microaggressions that you might have experienced due to your identity and culture? Like for me, you know, as a Jewish individual, I get all the time because I'm terrible at bookkeeping and like my friends are like, you're a ter you know, you're a terrible Jew. Like, aren't you supposed to be good with money? And it's like, that's what? Like, where does that come from, right? So take a second and think. And if you want to share, go ahead and, you know, you can either type it in the chat or um, do like a little hand raise emoji. Um, and I can do, ah, you sound different when you're on the phone, when you sound white. Yes, I hear that one a lot. They made a really good movie about that too, I think. Um, I can't remember what the name was. But yeah, you hear that a lot in cultures. You also hear that a lot in the gay community where people are like, you don't sound gay or like, where's your gay voice, right? Um, yeah, you're not like them. What is them supposed to even mean? Oh, your English are so good. Where are you from? You're a fob. What's it, what is fob? I've never heard that one before. I'll have to look that up. How old were you when you moved here? Oh, fresh off the boat. Ah, okay. Uh, how old are you when you moved here? Your English is really, uh, that one too. Oh, asking what type of Asian you are. Yeah, yeah, these, and it's funny because when we, we hear a microaggression, we think, we say subtle sometimes, but sometimes they're not that subtle. Like sometimes they're very explicit. Um, and then people get so offended when you point out that like what you're saying is not appropriate, right? And you're like, no, please don't say that to me. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing. Keep sharing if you want to. Um, I'm going to move forward, but please keep sharing. I, the more you share, the happier I am. Okay, so here are some common microaggressions that you're going to hear in the TGNB community. You're already so handsome or pretty as. Uh, wow, I would have never known. Your voice is deeper than mine. You don't look trans. You're pretty for someone who's trans. 
I'm not usually into trans men, but I can make an exception for you. So what are some other microaggressions you might think that the trans community faces? Um, I know for me, I used to have super, super long hair, like all the way down to my butt. And when I came out as trans, people were like, but your hair is so long and pretty. And like, but you know, girls would have been so blessed to have that hair and you're just gonna throw it away. And I'm like, well, I mean, all my hair is gone anyways, but I'm like, what? Um, what are some other microaggressions you might think that the community faces? Oh, oh, you're my first trans friend. Yes. I, okay. When people say to me, oh, you're the first trans person I've ever met. I always answer back that you know of, right? It's like, how do you know? Um, when will you really transition? Yes. Or have you had the surgery or, um, my favorite one, which we'll see in the next slide what work they've gotten done. Yeah, that's a big one. I'm like, you know, why would you, you wouldn't ask someone who's had work done, who's cisgender. I know we've all like thought of asking, but you wouldn't. Um, okay, so this is a big one. This is one we get a lot. Are you ready? Oh, how do you have sex? Yes. Oh, question their ID. That is not you. Yep, that happens a lot too. Um, this is a big one. Stop telling us we're brave. So trans individuals all the time get told, I know me, even to this day, wow, you're so brave, okay? Stop, stop saying that. Because being out or to, or making the decision to transition does not constitute as bravery. It's usually a life or death situation that we have to choose. So the fact that we're living in the world, okay, maybe we're strong, maybe we're resilient, maybe we are adaptive, but we're not brave, right? we are making a choice to live our authentic life. Living authentically should be a human right. Thoughts of bravery aren't applicable to cisgender individuals when they live authentically, right? So if you have someone who is cisgender and their parents are you know, all doctors and lawyers and they decide to be an artist, they're choosing to live their authentic life and saying, wow, that's so brave, like it doesn't, like what? Like that doesn't make sense. So why would you tell a trans person to make their authentic journey, you know, that is something of bravery. So I just want you to think about that because it happens all the time. Um, and sometimes trans or non-binary individuals don't feel very brave. Sometimes making choices are gigantic sacrifices, right? So they lose friends, they lose family, they lose jobs. So it's not so, you don't feel good about your choices a lot of the time and telling us that we're brave just kind of, it kind of is like peeing on like, I don't know what is the phrase, you know, it's like kicking us when we're down, right? It's like, okay, great, at least I'm brave. Oh uh, yeah, misgendering and dead naming, that's more of an active aggression um, instead of a microaggression. That's like a legit active aggression sometimes. Okay, so privilege. Privilege is a word that we're actually hearing a lot of right now, especially uh, in the news, in different communities, and I'm really glad that it's being talked about. So privilege operates on a personal, interpersonal, cultural, and institutional level. So privilege can be seen in any kind of community. 
So a lot of the time I think about when I talk to like my Latinx friends and they say that there's privilege within that community based on skin tone and color. So, you know, white passing Latinx individuals operate on a higher level of privilege than not. And so within the communities, there's a lot of, um, a lot of aggression. Um, also with gay individuals, right? So gay cisgender men, there are different subcategories in the gay community or lesbian, whatever community. But I think a lot about the gay community, um, there's privilege based on if you're straight passing or uh, if you're good looking, right? So it happens everywhere. Privilege gives advantages, favors, and benefits to members of dominant groups at the expense of targeted groups. So what that might mean is like a trans individual um, might not get a job. Like, so they might be qualified for a job, but the job goes to the cisgender person because the company feels it's probably just easier to hire someone who's not trans, right? Say this trans individual's sort of not as passing or they come out, right? It's easier for the company to hire the cisgender person, even if their qualifications aren't the same. And that happens all the time. I actually worked in recruiting and I would actually see it happen and have to call it out. It happens with people of color. It happens with queer individuals. It happens all the time. Privilege is a characteristically invisible thing, right, to people who have it. So a lot of individuals who are in power of privilege don't realize that that's, what hap that's what's happening. Oh, is there a way to track this pattern? That's a good question. Um, Research-wise, probably through like uh, case studies or questionnaires, but I'm not sure. I admit when I don't know something and that I do not know. So, but I'm gonna look into it because that now fascinates me. Okay, faces of privilege. So remember, we're talking about the United States right now. So in other cultures or other parts of the world, it's completely different. But in the United States, privilege is granted to people who have membership in one or more of these social identity groups. White individuals, able-bodied people, heterosexuals, males, Christians, middle or owning class people, middle-aged people, and English-speaking people. So if any of these things speak to you, and I say male, I say cisgender male, um, if any of these things speak to you, you already have one face of privilege. Um, whether or not you're aware of it or whether or not you know what that privilege is gaining you, you just inherently have it. Okay, so just think on that for a second. We're going to look at it, and now we're going to flip side. So let's talk about explicitly, since we're here right now, cisgender privilege. I love this little slide where it's like, sometimes it's easy to forget how good we have it. And then you're right, let's try to do that less often. Agreed, right? It's because cisgender individuals carry this immense amount of privilege that they're unaware that they have. So we're gonna move into a little bit of an activity. You could usually, you could probably just use your fingers to count or if a piece of paper is easier for you, then feel free to just you know, grab a piece of paper real fast. So I know it's a kind of a meaty slide and I'm gonna read it slow. Here's the activity. For every statement I read out, if you could say yes to this, give yourself a point, okay? Easy, simple, peasy. Statement one, you can use public restrooms without fear of verbal abuse, physical intimidation, 
or arrest. Two, strangers don't assume they can ask you what your genitals look like and how you have sex. Three, strangers call you by the name you provide and don't ask what your real name is and assume they have the right to call you by that name. You don't have to worry about being profiled on the street as a sex worker because of your gender expression. What number was that for? Okay. Five. You are not required to undergo extensive psychological evaluation in order to receive basic medical care. Six. You can easily find role models and mentors who emulate and share your identity. So I'm going to leave this slide because we're going to go on to the rest of the questions. I just want to leave this for a second. Okay, the remainder of the questions. You can purchase clothes that match your gender identity without being refused service, mocked by staff, or questioned about your genitals. You could purchase shoes that fit your gender expression without having to order them in special sizes or asking someone to custom make them. Your gender is an option on a form. You don't have to deal with old photographs that do not reflect who you truly are. If you're dating someone, you know they aren't just looking to satisfy curiosity or kink pertaining to your gender identity. For example, the novelty of having sex with a trans person. Okay, so I'll give it a couple of seconds so you can re catch up if you need. Okay, here's the score sheet. If you couldn't say yes to any of those, so zero, you have zero cisgender privilege. If you said one to three, you have minimal cisgender privilege. If you have four to seven, you have pretty average cisgender privilege. And if you've scored eight to 11, well, you have immense cisgender privilege. And a question popped in and said, do you think that cisgender persons don't want to know the kind of privilege that they have? Absolutely, right? Because the second you're aware, you start feeling all sorts of things. Okay, so remember your number. And I want us to take a second and discuss if you want to share. So some questions, right? What came up for you during this exercise? What are you more aware of? Did anything surprise you? And it's interesting because I the every couple of, so I've been transitioned for more than half my life now. So for almost 16, 17 years now. Uh, and the more and more I actually take this quiz, the more I can answer yes to. So it's, for me, it's a very interesting thing um, because I have passing cisgender privilege. Um, but for a lot of you, I'm sure this was the first time you took this quiz and probably scored pretty high. So what are some thoughts that you're having around this quiz? And I'm gonna go through and see if anyone wants to share out loud or you can type in the box. Not surprised of high score, but hoping it wouldn't be as high. Yep. It's, it's, it's very, um, well, I don't even know the word. It sometimes can be very interesting to score uh, high and realize your privilege. Oh, score to six. Okay. So pretty, pretty, um, 
average. Let's go back for a second. So six average cisgender privilege. Okay. Did anyone score an 11? Yes, 11. Okay. Right? It's it's surprising. And, and actually, you probably could have scored much higher because this quiz is actually 30 questions long. Um, <laughs> but I didn't want to... Uh, go through all of it i here i went back if you guys wanted to look um yeah the question that quiz is 30 questions long and it grows and grows and grows every year and you know like i said you could take it different points in your life especially as a trans individual and start going into cisgender privilege um but it's really interesting. The one that I always resonate with is shoes that fit my gender expression because I wear a size six and a half male, uh, which is, what is that, six and eight? I think that's like an eight and a half women's and like doesn't exist in child. So I'm always having to find shoes. And it really sucks because, you know, 15, 16 years post-transition, I still think about you know, things every time I go out and buy a pair of shoes, right? Every time I walk into a store, I have that moment of like, I wish I wasn't trans, which is very rare, but it happens. Um, 11 was not a shock, a very rare privilege. Questions are a reminder of some of the privileges I don't always think about, like shoe size. Yes, exactly. Uh, the one I also get a lot as a gay identified trans man is, um, you know, wondering whether or not someone's wanting to date me because of sexual curiosity, right? And that happened a lot. When I was single, I'm, I'm engaged now, but when I was single and dating, you know, it was a lot of questions around like, or statements around like, I wanna try, well, I would always wanted to try that, right? Which would be what? A microaggression. Um, so not believing that people would wanna date me just based on the fact that I'm me. Um, let's see, surprise a few years ago, a non-binary friend asked to go with them to the bathroom at a concert due to concerns for safety. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mentioned this last time, but for everyone who, who wasn't there, uh, a big thing around safety, especially for individuals who may or may not have passing privilege is going to bathrooms. And I know for me, when I go to new places, I'll send in cisgender people to male restrooms and be like, can you check out the male bathroom? Uh, especially in gay bars, a lot of bathrooms don't have doors on the stalls. Uh, and so figuring out, you know, how to go to the bathroom safely is privilege. And sometimes it's like, I can't. Um, and that happens a lot. So I'm gonna move forward. I really thank you so much for sharing. Uh, and I hope that you carry this with you. And if you guys want, um, all you have to do is look up online cisgender privilege like activity or score sheet. You can find the longer ones, um, share them with people. They're great party, uh, party conversations. Okay, so using your privilege. This is something that I really, really highlight, okay? You can educate cis folks. So if you print out that score sheet and you go to a party your next Thanksgiving, right? I could just imagine you're sitting there. Hey, everybody, we're going to play this fun game, right? I don't know. That's my family. My family is weird like that. Um, you can make spaces safer. So you can, in your office, put up stickers, right, that have, like, trans, you know, safety or making sure that every bathroom is accessible 
um, not necessarily single stall, but like that they have stalls that lock, right? Or that they have at least one stall. Call out transphobia. So sometimes it's a lot uh, easier for a cis person to tell someone to stop being transphobic than a trans person. Take leadership from trans folks. So you're all doing that right now by being part of this. So yay. Be receptive to critique. That's a hard one. Even I know, even for me, but like, it's hard. Um, and donate to trans non-binary organizations. So trans and non-binary organizations are actually very common. They exist, but they fold really fast because they don't have money. People don't donate. And a lot of these organizations are being run by, and we'll talk about that in a bit, but run by trans individuals who inherently are on the lower socioeconomic um, category. So they're not paying themselves for their time and not making money. And so these organizations cannot sustain. So the coolest thing that, yes, Trans Latina Coalition. Yes, that's a great organization. It's here in Los Angeles. Actually, I do have to say, um, Yesterday, one of the, and this is actually will lead into our next topic, but one of the volunteers, she's been volunteering there for since its beginning, very big in the community, was attacked um, and was stabbed 20 times in Hollywood. Uh, she's, she's survived, she's in the hospital, but um, it's something that we face every single day. So uh, I'll share some info if you wanna like write she, uh, we're writing letters to her in the hospital, so. Um, okay, so with that said, we're gonna move into this social justice mindset. Um, and this is when we'll start talking a little bit about violence too. And I should have probably put a trigger warning before this thing, but there will be things that we're talking about that is kind of hard. And so I just say that if you need to step away or take a moment to breathe and relax, that's totally fine. I'm. Try not to be graphic, I don't like to get into things, but I do share like real life experiences. Okay, so social justice mindset. So what goes into that? Privilege and oppression, connection to trauma, importance of advocacy and mental health providers as social change, change agents, too many Gs. So let's first talk about the minority stress model. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of it. It's one of my favorite models. I learned about it in graduate school. So the minority stress model says that there are increased rates of discrimination, violence, and rejection related to someone's gender identity or expression that exceed the experience in a general population. Um, this is true for, so you could swap out gender identity and gender expression for race, for sexual orientation, for religion, but in this instance, we're talking about TGNV, right? <clears throat> Sorry. So this leads to negative mental health effects experienced by individuals. So minority stress is understood to be an additive to general stressors experienced by all people. It's chronic, so it's related to stable underlying social and cultural structures, and it's socially based. So it stems from social processes, institutions, and structures. And what happens actually, there's been some fascinating studies um, around, the minority stress model was mostly studied for individuals living with HIV, 
but they showed that like the effects of minority stress was showing symptoms of PTSD just as high as someone who went through one specific traumatic event. So minority stress affects the body just as much as like witnessing someone die or being in a car crash or having, um, you know, being sexually assaulted, right? But the, the big difference here is this is chronic and ongoing. So you don't really know where to start or know when it will stop in terms of treating it. Whereas like a car accident, it's a finite event, right? So you can start from the car accident and move forward. Uh, it's very fascinating. And I absolutely love this model. And one of the things I like to think about when you're thinking about your own minority stress is if we go back to the beginning where we talked about the white, uh, cisgender, uh, Christian, middle class, right? We talked about all those factors. Every one that you don't identify with, you move further away and add more and more minority stress, right? So if the circle is that like white, cisgender, heterosexual, Christian, middle class man, you know, the fact that I'm trans and then gay and then Jewish and then a student, you know, have student loan debt, you know, move forward, 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 adds to my minority stress. And everyone can find something about them there. So here are the processes of minority stress. Environmental and external events. So harassment and assault, those are big, big ones. Uh, this also, so remember assault, uh, well, actually, I don't, know if we went over this. Assault is actually not physical. Assault is intent to do harm. So um, if by saying like, I'm going to cut you or I'm going to kick your, you know, I'm going to beat you up after school or like, I'm going to, you know, F you up because you're trans, right? That's all environmental or hearing like while you're in church and hearing the preacher talk about going to hell, right? That's assault. You know, it's intent to do harm. Anticipation or expectation of external events. Internalization of negative societal attitudes and prejudices. So this is a huge one, internalized trans negativity. So I'm sure we've all heard internalized homophobia. So um, the mental health and LGBTQ social justice world is moving away from phobia and we're using negativity. So homo negativity or trans negativity, right? We have internalized thoughts of those two. Uh, and that's a huge one. Sometimes, as we all know, negative self-talk can be more damning sometimes than someone else, right? I've been there, I, I hear it. There's also concealment. So hiding your gender identity or hiding your gender history. So like if I'm with somebody and they don't know I'm trans and telling a story and having to remember like, are aspects of this story gonna out me, right? That adds stress. Um, you know, my mom, bless her, but she always loves to talk about when I cut all of my hair off um, when she went out of town. And that's a really funny story if you know me and you know my history, but if she's telling that story to people who don't know me, that's potentially dangerous and outing, right? So it's constantly living in the stress of concealment. So here's some really good news about minority stress. 
minority stress actually helps us build upon resilience, right? So exposure to an engagement with an other's uh, own minority stress helps us to emerge in immerse, immerse in, in uh, identity development. So there's stages of identity development. It's linked to self-esteem and psychological health, sense of belonging, fundamental psychological need. Um, and it's linked to improvement in mental health and suicide risk, right? So if we meet other individuals who share minority stress, it actually helps to empower us rather than bring us down. So how do we do that, right? Let's move, let's talk about some of this, right? So having a multicultural mindset as clinicians help us bring knowledge, awareness, and skills, and also helps us be aware of microaggressions. So first and foremost, as clinicians or people who work in field, recognizing microaggressions can already help to erase individuals' minority stress. So let's take a step back for a second and talk about multi, multiple identities and then go into one of my favorite terms, intersectionality. So multiple identities, we all have multiple identities, right? I'm trans, I'm gay, I'm, you know, a sci-fi nerd, I'm whatever, like it goes and goes and goes. So this is just one example of someone's multiple identity, right? So intersectionality, it's a newer term in terms of the like normal popular, not normal, uh, global population knowing about it, but intersectionality has actually been a term used in social justice for like years. So it was coined by a black feminist scholar named Kimberly Crenshaw. Uh, and it means critical awareness of the intersections between systems of oppression. So it's not additive, it's not adding oppression necessarily, it's just reinforcing it, right? So if you are a black trans woman living with HIV, right, that's a lot of intersections that reinforce oppression. To understand the magnitude of oppression based on marginalized identities, we must all address the combination, right? So within ourselves, within the world, within our clients, and most research around trans non-binary individuals actually ignore the concept of intersectionality. It's really surprising to me, but I think what happens a lot of the time here is that, you know, researchers or clinicians, scientists, whoever study, you know, see trans and they think that's their only, like, they get so caught up on that aspect of our identity that they forget that there's, you know, a million other aspects to ourselves. So let's talk about a huge aspect of intersectionality in the trans non-binary community, HIV. Transgender women have 49 times the odds of having HIV compared to the general population. Mind you, this was um, from a, a research in 2018, so it's probably more than that now. In the U.S., 21.6% of trans women are living with HIV. Little data is available for transgender men, but the thinning of vaginal lining due to the testosterone heightens risk factor of trans men who have sex with cis men. Okay, so like I said, we're going to get into something a little bit here. Um, so if medical stuff 
screams you out, feel free to check out for a second. But when you take testosterone, um, it thins the vaginal lining, right? And so for trans men who have sex with cis men, or especially gay cis men, it tears and it rips really easily. And so what happens is if you're having unprotected sex, the transmission rate is higher because of openings and cuts, right? That's, you know, HIV transmits through blood, through semen, um, breast milk, right? So not through, not through saliva, though. Remember that. That's a common misconception, right? But the transmission rate is a lot higher. Cis gay men, right, have all the HIV you know, uh, education, it's everywhere, it's in bars, it's in our face from the moment we come out. For a lot of trans gay men, they are brought up and given sex education, and we'll talk about sex education next time in, um, when we talk about adolescence, but in sex education, we are taught about cis women statistics of HIV, and thus unaware of HIV transmission a lot of the time, and we are at heightened risk. Um, so there is a lot of damage that we're doing to the community by not talking about it. PrEP and PEP, so real fast, PrEP, pre-exposure prophylactics, it's kind of like, um, think about birth control, or sorry, think about, yeah, think about birth control, but for HIV, so it helps to prevent the transmission of HIV, and PEP is like the morning after, a pill for HIV. So if you feel like you've been exposed and you take it within 72 hours, it lowers the risk of transmission. Here's the here's the problem though. They're ex super expensive. Um, and if you don't have insurance, they run about three grand uh, for a three month supply. Uh, Gilead, the, the company that administers it or, or uh, the pharmaceutical company will reimburse you. But who has time uh, to sit and try to fight for reimbursement or even the $3,000 out of pocket in the trans community. Um, and it's extremely difficult to access if you don't have insurance, right? So while the medication is out there, a lot of us can't afford to take it. Now, what is it? The transgender community is known to be sought after bodybuilders as well. I've never heard of that, but I should research that. Um, okay. so. Here's a quick, so that's a quick thing about HIV in the transgender non-binary community. And the reason why I brought this into intersectionality is because it's very, very prevalent in our community. And when I worked in HIV um, care, most of the people who were coming in around new diagnoses were trans women of color between the ages of 15 and 21. So that's just something to keep in mind. So HIV risk factors, lack of visibility and inclusiveness around HIV awareness, lack of prevention and education, we talked about that, barriers to care, violence, and poverty and unemployment, right? So there's a lot of violence that, ha I'm not saying, you know, if you hit someone in the face, you'll, you know, become trans, you know, you'll transmit HIV, right? It's just, you know, there's a lot of violence in the community. Um, and so when people experience violence and they experience either violence with care providers or violence with sex educators, right? It makes them less likely to want to go and get treatment because of uh, historical violence. Okay, so 
we're going to stop for a second because I know there's a lot and I've been talking a lot. I need a little bit of water. And we're going to test our knowledge. Okay, so there are three different scenarios here and they all encompass intersectionality. So I want you to just take a second. I'll read them over. Think about it. And I want you to think about what intersections you see. And you can pick one, you don't have to do all of them. And how many and how these intersections may also affect the transgender non-binary identity, right? First one is Kai. They are a 14-year-old non-binary person with Hawaiian heritage. And they were assigned female at birth. They were also adopted. Next is Gary. He's a 49-year-old Latino gay trans man. Served in the military for 10 years prior to transition, right? So um, when he identified or was living his life as female. Sophia is a 19-year-old Latina HIV-positive trans woman. She also works as a sex worker. So take a minute or two. Think about intersectionality. Think about how these intersections might play into their identity, right? Maybe prevent barrier to care, risk. And, you know, feel free to share in the box. So with Kai, if anyone took a look at Kai, I really fear for Kai, since we don't know where they are. Uh, oh, like, um, where they're living or what do you mean by that? Oh, Midwest, first year, yeah. Uh, it's generic, they don't exist, they're not real people, but I understand your, uh, your fear uh, feeling for them. And that's actually a really good point. Where someone lives could play into their intersectionality and play to their access to resources, right? So that's a really good thing. Actually, thank you for pointing that out. What else about Kai did we see? There's a big one about Kai that I always like to point out. Age, yes. Racial and cultural identity, yes. Adopted, that's a big one too. Um, adopted, and you might think, well, how does that play into it? But a lot of the time, um, you know, parents, and we'll talk about more about this when we talk about parents in the next lecture, but um, they think, like, would my parents not want me anymore? Did they make them picking me, choosing me, right? A lot of things. Conflict with cultural identity, depending, exactly, right? We're getting so much from G just these two sentences. So this is a really big deal about why intersectionality is something to talk about, right? Because we could just be assuming all these things are issues, but maybe Kai's like, yeah, everything's fine. My parents are fine, right? Actually, what really is my issue is like, my parents won't let my curfew extend, right? Like, we don't know, but we have to take these things into consideration. What about Gary? Oh, yeah, I like that too. It could be done. racial, yep. For Gary, that's a really big thing. Veteran. So veterans, huge, huge, huge. So I don't know, and we'll talk about, actually, this is on another slide, but um, you're still, there. the military is allowed to kick you out for being trans. Um, gay and, you know, LGB, don't ask, don't tell is gone, but trans, you can be discharged. Um, and so 
I don't know if anyone knows much about the military community, but it's a really like close knit, you know, there's family and community and people, you know, become really involved and it becomes part of their identity. So coming out as trans for Gary could mean that he's losing a large part of his life, right? So we don't think about sometimes as veteran status um, as part of intersectionality, but it is. Um, Gary could also be first generation Latino, absolutely. Um, and, you know, also Latinx culture has a lot of machismo, right? We talk about that. And that could be something with Gary. Also, the fact that he's gay. And we talked about, you know, being afraid. Maybe someone is trying to like use him for knocking something off of their bucket list. Who knows, right? What about Sophia? Yep, so Tay, tran uh, transitional age youth, HIV status, culture, sex work, yep, higher risk for violence, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, Sophia is actually out of the three that we labeled here, um, probably the most closely resembled to community that you will see if you're working in, or not community clients that you'll see if working in community-based clinics. Um, she is probably the most common story you will hear if working in low-cost medical settings, right? Um, because of, like, if we look at Kai, for example, Kai probably has health insurance because of their parents, right? Gary probably has health insurance just based off of statistics and age. But Sophia, right? higher risk for a lot of different things. So thank all of you for sharing and participating. I love these types of exercises and I love when you share because I learn things too, right? Yeah, Sophia could have allowed, could have quite possibly um, actually with sex work for a lot of trans women, they actually engage in it very, very early on, 14, 15 years old is the average um, because a lot of them run away from home. And it's a super, super actually, a big loving community of trans women who are sex workers. It's like fam their families, right? So it's actually um, very healing in a lot of ways. Okay, so I'm gonna move on. So let's talk a little bit about transphobia or as we discussed earlier, trans negativity. Transphobia refers to the intense feelings of disgust, repulsed, fear, or dislike of all TGNB individuals simply because of their gender identity. So this can be both internalized and externalized. We mostly see externalized transphobia, um, but internalized happens, as we talked about earlier, right? It it's, tends to sneak up on us, that implicit rejection. So common transphobic ideas include belief about mental instability, sexual deviance, which remember sexual identity and gender identity aren't the same, so we can throw that away, uh, that we're morally defective, and then we're dangerous to society. And I don't know if anyone remembers about five or six, maybe even seven years ago, gosh, um, there was a lot of stuff in the news about about letting trans women use restrooms and locker rooms and how they would go in and prey on little kids. And I'm like, okay, right? That's that dangerous to society narrative. These beliefs are often used to justify mistreatment 
and victimization of trans non-binary individuals uh, who are deemed unworthy of respect and dignity. So there's this thing called the trans panic defense. Um, there used to be gay panic defense uh, back probably in the 90s. There was a big court case where a man killed another man and claimed gay panic because he found out the guy was gay and thought he was like going to hit on him. Uh, and the guy got off. It's kind of like the Twinkie defense. I don't know if anyone remembered that. Um, but the guy got off and wasn't charged for murder, and there was a big uproar. That that has been gone. That's you can't claim gay panic anymore. You can claim trans pan, uh, claim trans panic. That is a thing. So if a cis man goes out with a trans woman, finds out that she's trans, and murders her he can technically get off because he can claim trans panic defense. Not so much in California, but definitely in a lot of the Southern and Midwestern states. Um, if you look in the news, there is a case happening, I forget which Midwest state, but right now around the same thing. To the media, I know you can't really see these very, very well, but these are three of the most common things that are happening in the media right now. So um, I think his name is Shay. I'm, I don't, I'm terrible with celebrity names, but he's um, SNL Weekend Update. He made, uh, Michael Che, thank you. I was right about the Che, I got close. Um, made a comment about Caitlyn Jenner and they showed a picture of Caitlyn pre-transition and it was just a horrific joke, something about penis. And this was like maybe two or three weeks uh, before the end of last season. So it was pretty new, pretty recent. Uh, that tiny little one is Elon Musk recently tweeted as right before the birth of his baby, that pronouns suck. When someone asked to clarify, he said that respecting people's pronouns is stupid basically. And it's a waste of time. Then he tried to back paddle and said that pronouns just shouldn't matter, but we all know, uh, we all know, um, what he meant by that. And then the one at the bottom, I don't know if anyone's been following the J.K. Rowling. Um, I have been a Harry Potter fan since book one came out. Midnight book releases, obsessed. I had a whole wall of Harry Potter stuff. So needless to say, I've been in mourning for the last couple of months. Um, J.K. Rowling has been unveiled to be one of the worst transphobes that we've had in the media ever. We call them TERFs, trans exclusion, or trans exclusion radical feminists, which means that they're a feminist and think that trans women aren't women because of the way that they were born. So these are things that are happening in the media. Um, any of you who have clients that are teenagers or young adults, I'm sure have, that are trans, I'm sure have been hearing about the JK Rowling stuff, but it's a really big hit to the community because Harry Potter, and this is my Harry Potter rant, but Harry Potter, it was like a safe haven for queer kids. And now that's sort of been taken away. So check up on your queer friends because we are hurting. Okay, so transphobia and care. Clinical work, oh, ironic, most rubrics deal. Yes, a lot of her books deal with issues surrounding mixed and multi-generational people. Also, people are saying like the werewolves are a metaphor for like LGBTQ and it's a whole thing. That could also be another uh, training. Anyways, transphobia and care. 
So clinical work, regardless of your presenting problem, should be trauma-informed. Um, this is with, with trans and non-binary individuals, right? Because as we saw a few slides back, right, minority stress gives the same sort of symptoms as post-traumatic stress disorder. There's high rates of anxiety, depression, suicidality, substance use, and other symptoms, like I just said, associated with PTSD. Violence. Rates of violence against TGNB individuals have skyrocketed within the last few years. There's a lot of theory as to why. I'm not going to go down that. Um, make your own conclusions, but it has skyrocketed. One out of three trans women have experienced sexual violence at least once in their lifetime. At least once. Um, it's probably a, you know, statistic should say at least three or four times, but that's what this says. Trans women actually make up the highest demographic of hate crime related murders. Um, there was a statistic in 2013 that trans women actually made up the highest crime uh, victim of passion, was it crime of passion? What it had to do with murders, um, that's a pretty big number. Trans Day of Remembrance, so it's every year on November 20th, and the Trans Day of Remembrance, or TDOR, was started in 1999 by the trans advocate Gwendolyn Ann Smith. Uh, it was started as a visual to honor the memory of Rita Hester, who was a trans woman killed in 1998. And then a couple of years later, Guanajuato was murdered. She's pretty well known. Um, she was a young trans woman living up in Northern California. Um, young, had her whole like career ahead of her, was going off to college, went to a party. A bunch of men found out that she was trans. Uh, stuffed her in the back of a car, killed her, and left her out in the middle of the highway. Um, so because of Rita Hester and Guanajuato, T-Door happens every year. Visuals are held all over the world. Uh, this number actually needs to be updated. It says that the this year we've seen 21 deaths of trans individuals. Since writing the slide, it's actually up to 30 now. Um, uh, and actually, the mix is both trans women and trans men. There's been a lot of deaths of actually trans men um, in the last two years. I think, yeah, last two years. So TDOR happens every single year. It's usually in person because of COVID. We're actually, the city of West Hollywood is holding one um, virtual this year. Um, and it's just a really, I'm not gonna, nice is not the right word, but it's a nice, um, event to sort of attend and see and just learn about all these individuals who have passed um, and help bring awareness about violence. And the really cool thing about TDOR is within the last three or four years, it's been getting an exceptional amount of media coverage, like from Huffington Post to the New York, you know, Times, like all over, like people are covering it, which means that um, people are knowing it's happening. A uh, question says, why is it considered an issue where women's colleges are now allowing trans non-binary young women? Shouldn't this have occurred a long time ago? Um, yes, absolutely. And we'll talk a little bit more about colleges when we talk next time. But 
Um, this is because of what we talked about, trans exclusion, radical feminists. Um, a lot of them in trans or in women's colleges would sort of say, well, you have to be a woman. Uh, sorry, chromosomes make up women or sex makes up women. And since that definition is changing, women's colleges and men's colleges are changing their definition of admission. Okay. I know this is a lot of info. You are all doing great. Um, let's talk a little bit about something a little bit happier. So resilience is a successful adaptation to adversity. Resilience. So a resilient is a trait that one possesses or can they, they can develop. We talked about that, right, with minority stress. It's a process that results in positive changes or it's the outcome of coping. So once someone's gone through successful coping mechanisms, they can add that to their toolbox and build resilience. What builds resilience? Affiliation with the larger community. Um, there's not a lot of trans specific groups in non uh, sort of city communities. So if you go like up north, you know, you, you're, it's harder to find like trans process groups or support groups. So we kind of lump in with the LGBTQ, even though it's not the same. Uh, positive peer support from fellow and trans individuals, community engagement. So going to events like TDOR, as sad as it might be, actually builds resilience because you get to mourn with your own community. Family support, provider support. So all of you, right, you can help build resilience and access to safe resources which they are everywhere. And if you ever need one, you can always email me. I'll give you my email. I actually have an Excel spreadsheet of resources all over the US. This is a, a hard graphic to see, but I just wanted to kind of show you resilience of a trans woman of color who have survived trauma, right? So there's all these things. So pride in one's gender or ethnic identity, re recognizing and negotiating oppression, navigating relationships, accessing healthcare and financial resources, connecting with activists, and cultivating spirituality. So spirituality is something that I don't talk about much just because I, I know it's, I should have, I forget about it because it's not part of my life, but spirituality can be very, very helpful when building resilience, especially for trans women of color. So grief and social injury, how can we support our clients in their grief? So when we think about grief, we're not talking about, you know, someone died or my pet ran away, right? We're talking about the grief of loss of privilege, of loss of safety, of um, dealing with oppression, right? Grief can be in many different forms. So grief and sadness can be used as a means of remembering and forming political movements. Toxic grief and melancholia, right? So toxic grief is if we're blocking it, we're not thinking about it, we don't want to express it in session. We inflict injury upon oneself, either by self-talk, like negative talk, literal injury, um, putting ourselves in situations that might be dangerous. So, you know, having risky sexual behavior or going to parties and blacking out, right? It's putting us in risk. Anger turns inward, so self-harm and suicidality, and unconscious and displaced aggression. So we see this a lot. We see a lot of trans activists 
who are angry all the time, which we should be, right? I'm angry all the time, but we displace that aggression on the wrong people. So instead of going and talking to uh, policymakers or clinics, we'll turn on each other and we'll have arguments with each other. And that's not good. There's also social construction of grief, with, which is all of the above. So let's talk, let's get a little psychobabble here. Let's talk about grief and defenses, right? So defenses could be features of mourning, but also include self-beratement or self-hatred. So like you did this to yourself, you're gross, you're disgusting, how could you? Anger towards self or everyone else, right? So that anger goes in order outward. Difficulty differentiating from who or what. So you kind of either identify with the aggressor or it's not a person who's doing this to you, but the system, right? It's hard to sort of differentiate. Ambivalence about feelings and narcissistic identification. So this happens to me because I'm trans, right? Or this happens to only me if I pass more. Um, it must be something I'm doing to cause this. Why is there a hatred aggression with the trans community within the drag community? That's an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure if there is so much hatred or aggression. It's just they don't, they're not the same. So I think it's more as we talk about this, it's like people who like not like cis het people lump them together. And that could be very aggravating for one another. Right, because you could be trans and drag. Like I've sometimes toyed with like doing drag, like you know, as a woman, but keeping my beard. Right, that doesn't make me any less trans and any less of a drag queen. Um, it actually be super like messing with the system. So I don't know if it's they have issues with each other, but rather issues with the outside world lumping them in. Now, if we want to like take a step back and talk about media again. Yes, there's been a lot of issues, especially like RuPaul's Drag Race, where a gay cis man has come out and said he won't allow trans women or trans men on his show because that's cheating, right? But then again, you're negating people's identity because I, if I wanted to do drag, would be every sense of the word a drag queen, right? Because I'm a male-identified person doing women's drag. So... It's very complicated. It's a complicated answer. Um, but historically, there's just been a lot of muddling from the outside population. Working with grief. So as clinicians, as caseworkers, as people who provide support, help align the past to the present, right? So what happened to you? How can we prevent that happening? How can we... Um, sit with it how can we take out that aggression right aligning what has happened in the past to how they're feeling in the present some clients actually need permission to grieve so give it to them right allow them that space to grieve name the causes of the grief and the objects of their anger so rather than you're angry at all you know men be like you're angry at cis men who are transphobic right? So it's changing the narrative. Help identify the social forces that have harmed them. 
help clients develop a narrative of what happened. If you're a narrative therapist, this is awesome. This is, you know, what you would be doing anyways. Um, explore ongoing grief related to social or political structures, as well as safety concerns and what harms, uh, what may continue to harm them, right? Um, it's constantly evolving and changing. The news changes every hour. So keeping up to date on what's happening can help realize where the client is in their grief. Okay, some discussion. I told you guys, I love to include you in discussion, right? What are your thoughts around violence, grief, and social injury? And what are ways in which you can help foster a sense of safety when working with TGNB clients? Yeah, so validating experience of trans people and how they've navigated those experiences absolutely right um normalizing i love that the word normalizing experiences uh, in general uh, is really important and validation is really important and something to mention right as a clinician or as someone who works with the community is you don't have to have experienced these things right these exact causes of violence cause of you know injury, right? You don't have to have experienced the same thing, but you know what the emotion and feeling of having your safety threatened feels like, right? So identifying with clients and talking about that can sometimes really, really bring you two together. So acknowledging, I don't know your experience, but I know what it's like to feel scared. You know, I had a, a therapist tell me that once when I came out and I was assaulted um, and they were like, you know, I've been assaulted too. And it wasn't for the same reason, but I understand. And so that made me feel like I can talk about my experience and be understood. Uh, identify what safety looks like. Uh, Field-based clinicians, so identifying safe spaces. Yes, absolutely. We'll talk about safe spaces in a minute. Um, literal safety, right? Physical safety, huge, huge, huge. Uh, the LGBT Center in Los Angeles has drop-ins uh, for trans youth. They have a, uh, so 24 and under is what they constitute as youth. They can come, shower, spend the night, have some food. They have to leave the facility, but they can come back like an hour later and do it all again if they need to. Um, so that's awesome. Uh, anything else? All right, I'll let you keep t typing and thinking. Oh, sometimes the client's been uh, with me as a clinician. It's the only safe place to access where they're, yes, yes, yes. So thinking about, uh, there was a stat in my last lecture about a lot of trans individuals, the only people that they're out to are their clinicians. So you're giving them that hour of safety and validity. And that's really, really, really important. So I know recognizing that sometimes can be really overwhelming, but it could also be really beautiful. Like you're providing like moments of authentication. That's not to be taken lightly. That's really, really great. So moving forward, we're getting towards the end, you guys. Doing great. Oh, creating a space where clients can change how they identify. Yes, exactly. People aren't solidified in their identity. Who's been like, you know, I'm approaching, you know, a, a big birthday in my life. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know who I am, right? It happens all the time. So changing identity, even around gender, that's important, having a safe space. 
trans youth to identify as avatar characters. Yes, actually, Dungeons and Dragons is a huge thing with trans youth right now. They love it. So that's a safe place to actually talk to trans youth um, or young adults. I see like 24 and under um, about having safety, right? They could play D&D and be whoever they want. No one has to know. I tried to play it. It confuses me. If anyone can explain it, please. I have a lot of youth, and all I do is talk about it, and I'm lost. I'm like, what is it? Is this like World of Warcraft? I don't know. Okay. Moving forward. Allyship. Every one of you is an ally right now. Because you're in this, this workshop, I am giving you my ally seal of approval. So allyship is a process, and everyone has more to learn. I'm even an ally to some you know, aspects of the trans community. I'm a non-binary ally. Allyship involves a lot of listening, which you've all been doing today, so yay. Sometimes people say doing ally work or acting in, solita in solidarity with as a reference to the fact that being an ally is actually not an identity. It's an ongoing and lifelong process. So keep that in mind. An ally is not an identity. It's a process. And acting in solidarity is a really great term that social justice warriors have been using lately um, because you can show up and not say a word, but you're acting in solidarity because you're there, right? So that makes you an ally. We talked about this already, use privilege to call out behaviors. So we are tired. <laughs> Trans individuals are tired of speaking, talking, educating, right? Um, we're constantly aware, having to engage, educate, you know, it's all without the privilege and access and resources that you probably possess. And you also have the power to at least start the dialogue and you have the responsibility to at least start the dialogue, right? So, um, you know, if you can sense that like a trans friend of yours might be nervous about something, you can say, hey, would you want me to go to the bathroom with you? Or would you like me to go with you to the gynecologist's office or to a doctor's appointment? Or, um, you know, being an advocate. So with clients, some of you have the option to go to doctor's appointments with your clients and sitting with your, uh, um, your client prior and saying, let's make a list of the words we're gonna use to reference your, your anatomy so that we can hand it to the doctor and the doctor can use that list. And if they make a mistake, don't worry, I will correct them. You don't have to correct them, like, don't worry, right? Because going to the doctor is hard enough and then you're dealing with this, right? So that's an awesome way to use your privilege because you're not worried about what the doctor thinks about you, you're not the client. Um, so there's a lot of, lot of ways that you can use your privilege. Um, I know for me, you know, when I've worked with, uh, not in a client capacity, but like when I've mentored youth or mentored other trans individuals who weren't out at home, they would ship stuff to my house, right? So like they would ship their binders, which, you know, help bind their chest or their, um, you know, they would, I would hold all of their clothing, right? So there's ways that you can be an ally um, outside of just speaking. Practice proper care. So use the informed consent model in trauma-informed care. So 
The informed consent model is uh, a model in which we seek to better acknowledge and support patients' rights for personal autonomy and choosing care options and related to their transition, right? So if a client chooses to come to you, right, they're not assigned to you, but they choose to come see you, that is part of the informed consent model. So you can validate, say, thank you so much for coming to see me. I respect your right and your personal autonomy. How can I help you through your transition? Or why are you here, right? Maybe it has nothing to do with transition. Trauma-informed care, we talked about that already, assumes that an individual is more than likely to not have a history of trauma and recognize the presence of post-traumatic symptoms and always acknowledge the role that trauma plays in someone's life, right? Because it is there. We've talked about it all day long today. Have a knowledge of resources. So here's a list of things that you should know about if you're working with the community. Uh, affirmative medical providers. So if they have a specific insurance, for example, right? Like if they have Kaiser and they live in SoCal, Kaiser has an entire trans non-binary program uh, that's amazing, amazing, amazing. But if they don't have Kaiser and they have something else, who are some in-network in providers? Safe housing programs, we talked a little bit about this last time, but I'll reiterate that uh, trans individuals can be discriminated against um, in terms of housing. So they can be denied housing uh, like apartments or shelters based on their gender identity. Food programs, so finding ways to get access to food. Vocational training, unemployment is super high in the trans uh, non-binary community. So finding uh, like Trans Can Work is an organization that specifically helps with resumes, finding jobs. I love Trans Can Work, a fun little story. Um, the woman who started the organization owns, she's a trans woman who owns about 50 Apoyo Locos all through California. And she's, there's actually a documentary about her. I think it's called The Chicken Lady or something. It's fascinating. Um, she makes it her mission to employ most trans individuals in her restaurant. So patronize Apoyo Loco, um, especially here in LA. Uh, inclusive support groups, really important. Safe needle exchanges, so we've talked about that. Um, not only, uh, and when we think of needle exchanges, we think about like drugs. That's actually not what I'm alluding to. I'm alluding to illegal hormones. So using needles to inject and do silicone, um, to do hormones, to do all sorts of things. Knowing where to exchange those, those needles are, are really important. And HIV prevention and resources. All over LA, there's access all over, there's a Saban clinic, LGBT center, um, all over. Okay, so reflection. Last reflection of, of the workshop. What are ways in which you want to be a better ally to the community? And how will you help others be an ally? Self-educate, yes, knowing the right terms. Pronouns, yep, let's talk about pronouns, right? Affirming pronouns, uh, providing resources, challenging trans negativity, encourage others to attend trainings, yes, definitely. Take knowledge, new therapists and group supervision, be continuously learning, and in SPA 3, we had more resources. SPA 3, don't remember SPA 
sorry. It usually worked in spot six. I'll try to see if I can find some in spot three. Help by educating colleagues, assisting families, empathy, personally educate. Yes, you guys, look at this. So many, those are fantastic. Um, address gaps within agencies and colleagues. Perfect, keep sending. Um, I'm gonna move to the next slide. So questions and comments. So here is my info. I'll also type it in. I'll leave this up for a second while we ask questions and comments, and then I'll move into the eval slide and whoever wants to have 30 minutes back to their day um, can. But what general questions and comments do you have? And even if it was something we didn't touch on, uh, I'm happy to see if it's appropriate for this conversation. Um, but yeah, questions, comments. Yeah, so getting ready for college, any suggestions? So I will go heavily into college when we do the lifespan one, if you're on that one uh, Thursday. If not, I'll give you a quick little scenario. Oh, you will be? Okay, great. Um, just in case anyone else isn't, I'll just say, um, there's a lot of awesome getting ready for college guides on Glisten. I'll type it out. Glisten. It's a LGBT student education. It's the Gay and Lesbian Student Education Network, but now it, it was created way before we added the BT. So um, it's for everyone on there. They have a lot of awesome resources. There's also TSER. Trans Student Educational Resource Network. They have a lot of guides as well around um, college preparation. Um, so I have a client in middle school and a client that just started high school. One is um, non-binary and uh, trying to explore their identity a little more. Okay. Um, and I've been doing my best to provide like resources to sort of immerse them a little, to have a, to get a better understanding because they didn't even know the word non-binary existed um, until we started doing some activities. Sure. Um, and then I have another uh, trans male and, but in both of their families, um, there's, they're religious, um, we're dealing with basically family, being at home is sometimes not, doesn't feel safe. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe not physically, but it's not a safe space. Um, and so what are your suggestions for helping kind of with that? Absolutely. So for the first one, there's a book called My Gender Quest and my... Oh, shoot. Uh, I think it's I, hold on. I'll find the link for the actual name for the other one, but both of those workbooks are perfect for that age. And it helps around exploration of gender identity. It talks about terms, there's prompts. So it'll be like today, you know, imagine you blah, 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 right? It's like very engaging and you can like assign them a, like a page and then come back and you can discuss it. I love it. I've even given it to my adult clients. Um, I'll, I'll give you the name of the second one too, because it's kind of like a journal and I love that one. 
Um, for the client around safety, so that one's always hard when you're underage because there's a lot of things that you can and can't control. Um, so what I focus on a lot with my youth is, you know, if they can't come out, if they can't be affirmed, to find ways that they can kind of like secretly and safely affirm themselves when they are encountering non-affirming moments. So um, you can create like a jar where they come up with like affirmation um, activities that are like five to 10 minutes long. So if they're in their house and their parents are misgendering them or talking you know, negativ negatively, they can go into their room, pull out an, af an affirmation activity and engage in it so that they're combating the negative experience. The level of activity also varies, right, depending on safety. Um, but there could be things in there like, you know, uh, one of the ones I do a lot is like fill up a dream Amazon cart of like clothing you want and toys you want, right? And it's like you get to do that and explore or, you know, draw a comic of how that situation could have been, right? But they're predetermined activities that kind of helps soothe and affirm because um, there's not a lot of control like they can't they don't have a lot of control especially as teenagers so um i find my clients really enjoy enjoy that or doing things like you know band, like you know get band-aids that might be like if teenage mutant ninja turtles right if they're into that and so they can put a band-aid on and when they're not being affirmed, you know, they can lift their sleeve up and see that and remind themselves that they have control over their own body in other ways, right? And usually, like, a, a Band-Aid with a character on it is pretty safe, you know, to navigate at home. Hopefully that helped. Um, let me, yes, the shopping for Amazon idea, I love it. I do it myself, too, when I need to feel affirmed. Um, let me really fast find the book name for you. It is loading. Uh, it's called I Am Enough. And it is by Cheryl B. Evans. And the picture is a bunch of light bulbs. And it's really cool. It's even just fun to do if you're like, oh, I want to, you know, do a prompt. Um, it's all about figuring out who you are as a person in conjunction with your gender identity. And thanks to everyone who was on today. I know it's a lot to take a couple of hours out of a day. It's interesting. I feel like I've been working more from home than before. So I understand everyone has busy schedules but I super appreciate it.